It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because This Might Get Uncomfortable starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lordson. Luke, I have a couple things that I want to bring into the light that I've never admitted to you and also that I think our listeners would be super interested to know about you. Number one is that, and you were literally just doing this before we hit the record button, you are a badass motherfucking guitar player, dude. Like People may not know this about you because... Obviously, you're doing so much incredible work with wellness and mindfulness and, and biohacking and, and health in general. But the first time I heard you play guitar, you were just sharing some snippets on Instagram. I'm like, this dude has the blues in him. I don't know much about your musical history, brother. But like, when you rip off some blues riffs, I'm like, I feel like I'm bromancing on you a little bit when you rip that out. Like, for real. Like, you're a really good guitar player. Oh, that's so nice to hear, man. Thank you. I really appreciate that. I'm truthfully, I'm a bass player. You know, I just, when I stopped playing in bands a few years ago, I I still had, I had a really beautiful 71 Fender jazz bass and great old vintage Ampeg tube amp and SVT. Any bass players in the audience will know exactly what that is. So I had like the perfect bass rig and I used it for many, many years. And then I just realized I just do not like playing bass on my own. So I went and sold that gear and bought a couple guitars and started kind of playing guitar instead, but it's super fun. And um, I'm glad that you enjoy it. I was actually just talking to a friend of mine. uh, His name is Doyle Bramhall, who's like a real, real musician. (laughs) You know what I mean? Plays with Clapton and Robert Roger Waters and all these people and just fantastic musician. And I was actually kind of just wanting to work through some of my insecurities around music with him because it's, it's always been a place where my ego really flares up, not in thinking that I'm awesome, but the contrary side of ego where I feel like a loser and that I'm not good enough. And uh, I was talking to him about that because he's such an accomplished musician and just is gifted and has been playing in bands forever. And I said, yeah, I get really insecure around you because you're so good. And I compare myself with people like you and I think I suck. And he looked at me like I was nuts. And he's like, (laughs) he goes, dude, music is music. He goes, some of my favorite musicians are like African tribesmen who play a one string instrument that doesn't even, it's not even tunable. You know what I mean? It's just, it's about the feeling, not the technique. And I think sometimes because I'm not trained and I I don't really have any technique or classical music training or background or anything, I get really shy about it. And that's one of the reasons that I make myself play a lot on Instagram is to work through that insecurity and just you know, let it rip and always remember that um, thing that my friend Doyle told me that it's, it's all about the feel. It's not about, you know, your technical prowess. And he hearkened back to, you know, some of the eighties, like metal guitar players, these, you know, it's like they're technicians, but it doesn't really have a lot of feeling some of the time. So, so that's really nice to hear. Thank you. I will continue to present my musical ideas to the world. And, uh, you know, it's glad to know that it doesn't sound like a train wreck to at least one person. I love that you admitted how you feel that not enoughness because that comes up so much on this show. And one of our very first, maybe it was our, our first freebie on our website, wellevator.com was, uh, called or is called cause it's still there. You are not, you are enough because not enoughness is one of, if not the biggest challenge that we saw people facing. And it's 
such a beautiful thing when someone like yourself admits that very openly, because I think it gives other people permission to talk about it openly, but also lets them know that they're not alone. And it's always so interesting when you hear somebody that you perceive as being good at something say that they don't feel like they're good at it or good enough at it. And it also reminds me, Luke, of of your podcast because Jason and I were listening to it for reference when we were starting to work on this podcast. And we were really inspired by... I think it was your first or second episode that you ever did where you told your whole story. And it was like your entire life history. And we used your podcast as the model for our second and third episodes where each of us shared our life stories. And it was because of you. We felt so free to do that. We were I remember listening to your story in the car. I think it was with Jason. I can't remember. But uh, it was just so fascinating to hear you share about your life and where you came from. And so I wanted to give you a shout out for that and, and gratitude as well. Plus, encourage our listeners to go listen to that episode of yours because it's such a good backstory. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's funny. I was working with my writing coach yesterday because I'm in the in the beginning stages of birthing a book, and uh, w- the way we're working is just kind of coming up with all of this content that's already been archived because I've been doing I've been running my mouth for four years, so a lot of what I would probably say in a book has already been said. It just needs to be sort of wrangled together. And uh, that episode was one of the ones that I made a transcript of and I sent to her and she was like, she was like, dude, this is nuts. Your story's crazy. I mean, you might not have to write anything. Just put this out basically, you know, and I'm not going to do that because I've grown in the past four years, but it was actually very cathartic as a practice to, you know, just, I just sort of like bullet pointed out some of the more meaningful transformative experiences in life. And it was really good to be able to do that. It was my first real step into the vulnerability and authenticity, even though not many people were listening back then, uh, with the exception of maybe you two and 10 others. But, <laughs> but still, nonetheless, I was publicly saying for the first time that I had had issues with drug abuse and, you know, like childhood trauma and all of these things that I didn't go into much detail on them, but I, I kind of outed myself on some things that I had some shame or embarrassment around. And it was a really amazing experience actually to do that because I got so much positive feedback from the few people that did hear it and that they then felt authorized to be more revelatory about their own experiences and to let go of some of the stigma around these very common human experiences. And so based on that, I've just, I've keep pushing the envelope and talking about things that are more intimate and more personal, you know, of course, trying to do them in a tactful way when possible. But the more that I am just transparent about that, the more positive feedback I get. And what's really trippy about that, it's just a, a short tangent here because it's, I think it's something that's so valuable about independent media like ours is that we can say whatever we want for now. Although if you talk about immunizations, that's the new word I'm using for vaccines, um, you might get taken off the internet for just saying like, hey, is this safe? Just asking. But when people that are making independent media are able to talk about things in a very real, unedited, vulnerable way, it opens up the conversation for others to explore these things. And I think there's a deep healing in that and something that's really needed because these, you know, these shameful experiences that many of us have or that we make up about ourselves that are kept secret are kept alive by being kept in the shadows. And so when we can come out and talk about 
mental illness and addiction issues and, you know, eating disorders and all of the different psychological and emotional and spiritual pathology that we, so many of us suffer from, like that's where the healing is, is getting in there. And then each person that kind of pushes the envelope and their transparency paves the way for the next and the next and so on. So I've had such a great time since that first episode of kind of seeing what I can get away with, just like starting the show today saying like, I think I suck at music. And so that's why I keep doing it to get over that that ego game. But what the real irony here is, it's this cosmic joke is this, the observation of my own ego, how the things in my life that I felt people would reject me or abandon me for, such as, you know, some of my current faults or past experiences are the very things that draw people to me and gain me even more approval than what I would have gotten from people at large had I not revealed those things. You see what I mean? It's so ironic. It's like the things that we hide from people publicly because we're ashamed and we think we'll be rejected are actually the things that once we start talking about them, make people love us even more. And I'm just always so shocked and kind of pleasantly surprised that that is the case. In other words, there's really nothing for any of us to be ashamed of as long as you're working on yourself and making an effort to raise your consciousness and improve your own behavior and worldview and your character and raising your own consciousness and doing good things in the world. I think you can get away with being very transparent and real and people are starving for that authenticity, especially in today's climate of so much fake propaganda in the media. You know, we, so many people are waking up now and realizing that they've been living in a matrix and it's up to people like us that are in charge of our own content and have our own voice and point of view to make it safe for everyone to sort of come out of the shadows and just be who they are, warts and all. Yeah, this brings up, man, first of all, thank you for that in, incredibly in-depth perspective of you doing something that I think is often counterintuitive, right? Because I think especially being in a place like LA or necessarily being in the I don't know, health, wellness, human optimization field as we all are, I've certainly felt this pressure, not so much now, but but certainly in the past, especially the beginning of my career, man, to be like, what we have an old episode on this about people calling themselves experts or masters or gurus or whatever it is and using these terminologies to try and have a level of importance or authority. But to your point, man, like just opening up and showing people exactly who you are, the the power and the magnetism of that, and not doing it as a sales strategy, not doing it as a marketing strategy. Like, hey guys, I'm about to get vulnerable because <laughs> I see that a lot too. Of like, if you're telling me you're about to get vulnerable, you're kind of telegraphing it instead of just being vulnerable. But to me, one of the the gems that that I want to dig into, Luke, with you and, and Whitney, is especially now the idea of truth and the difference, I guess, on, on a level of, you know, do both of you believe that, there's, that there are omnipresent universal truths or that one's truth is personal and subjective? And are those two things mutually exclusive? Can they go together? Because I think right now, when you talk about independent media, there's so much information being bombarded to us every single day, not just talking about COVID, but the freedom of speech, the deleting of content, independent media. So when we talk about truth and sharing our truth, is it an omnipresent universal truth that we're disseminating or is it a truth based on our own experience? I 
absolutely unequivocally know that within the realm of consciousness, there exist timeless universal truths or principles that have always been true and will always be true and are fundamentally stable and unchanging. And there's also the subjective relationship that each one of us has with those truths or principles, right? And that's where it gets fun because you have theology, you have psychology, you have spirituality, you have all of the great teachings throughout time that are each individual point of awareness of consciousness in humans that are expressing their interpretation of or their experience with that universal truth. And this is why we see so many through lines and parallels between all of the different seemingly unrelated teachings. I mean, I, you know, I was interviewing Joe Dispenza recently and I've been aware of him for a long time, but really started doing a deep dive into his work. And I'm going, dude, this is all Kundalini yoga, <laughs> you know? And a touch of this and a touch of that, but fundamentally, especially the meditations and the practices. And I asked him that and he was like, well, duh. Yeah, it's all the same stuff because in the realm of consciousness in the quantum field, that universal unchanging truth exists there and all answers from the beginning of time to the end of time for all time in no time, nowhere and no person, no how is all there. And so we as these antennae for what we perceive to be the present moment, which is kind of a misnomer because there's just one moment that goes on and on and on and on has always been. It's just like one timestamp in that one big now that we each have the opportunity using our physical brains as antennae to perceive information and take in information and do what we want with it. And that's really what makes life interesting. And that's what the purpose I think of our free will is is that we can at any moment do what we think is the right thing based on our interpretation of truth. It's humanity's greatest gift, but it's also our greatest folly because we're so easily misled by our own innate desires, whether they be for significance or pleasure or to avoid death, uh, which is really what all fear you know, ultimately is about. And so we're really interesting creatures because we have this tether to spirit and tether to truth that's always there, but we also have free will that allows us to run amok and make all sorts of shit up. And so the game of life is really, I think, fine-tuning your receiver, which is that connection between your heart and your brain and creating that coherence between the two so that you can become more aligned and better at perceiving the true from the false from differentiating the true from the false, because there's so much falsehood that's created by our own minds based on past experiences. The, the defense mechanisms of the human brain are endless and boundless. The things that they make up, the story that the mind makes up about what we're perceiving, it just never stops. And until we get right with who we really are as this point of consciousness, and understanding that we are all one thing, having an individual experience and not as a mental construct or something we read in a book, but using meditation and different practices to access that place where we're still there, but everything else is also there, that that's when we can start to actually discern the true from the false and, and fine tune our intuition because we feel it in our heart or in our gut. When people say, 
you know, my heart's just not in this, or I have a gut feeling. It's a very real thing. And we've been given all of the senses for a reason. And that reason I believe is to be able to learn how to discern what's true and what's not true and use our free will to steer our little ships closer and closer to universal truth. And we might find that through Kabbalah. We might find that through ayahuasca. We might find it through TM. We might find it through Catholicism, Hinduism, every ism. It's like every window into the mansion of God gets you to the same place. It's sort of just what appeals to your personality and your family lineage and your ancestry that's in your DNA, you might gravitate toward one particular style of teaching. You know, now there's this really popular thing with the Tim Ferriss types, this stoicism, you know, which to me sounds a little bit too much like atheism, you know, (laughs) but it's really not. It's in finding truth in stillness and not having attachments. And so you could tie that to some of the fundamental truths in Buddhism. And once you start to play in these waters and really, you know, find what your flavor is, you find that all of the truths are all there. They're just represented in different ways. They're just kind of different strokes with different colors of paint, but they all create the same mosaic in the end. It's all the same painting. It's all part of that universal consciousness. And my job for many, many years has been to align myself with spiritual truths as close as I possibly can and to just stay in alignment with those. And for me, the fundamental truths are the ones that are represented by the 12 steps. And they're just super simple and very clear. They're not ambiguous at all. It's be honest with yourself, brutally honest with yourself, radically honest with yourself, accepting things that you can't change, using courage to change the things you can, to have a willingness to evolve, a willingness to grow, to have open-mindedness. I mean, deep open-mindedness, not liberal-mindedness, but open-mindedness where you're not only willing to entertain ideas that are foreign to you and that are new to you and might threaten your framework of how you think things work, but also to discard ideas that you once held to be true that have proven themselves to be false. To have a, you know, an inbox and an outbox in your mind and in your belief systems where you're willing to discard things as they become less useful. And in the principle of service, you know, of serving others and getting out of self-centeredness and selfishness, the principle of restitution, of making amends when you've harmed others and to do your best to not continue to do so, to practice prayer and meditation in your life. I mean, these are just the fundamental basic principles in the 12 steps. And why I love that model is because it's so simple and it's devoid of any theology. You don't have to believe, and I'm not you know, trying to preach and tell people to go join a 12-step group. That just happens to be how I found my spirituality because of my issues with addiction and things like that in the past. And it's still really the foundation of my life and who I am because it's so simple and it doesn't require you to buy into any particular system. I mean, the 12 steps in and of themselves are a system, but they don't, there's no dues or fees. There's no, there's nothing that makes you be a member of the 12 steps or not. They're just a group of concepts or truths that one can apply in a number of different ways. And also what's beautiful is that one can apply whether they even have ever been addicted to anything or have any sort of pathology that's manifesting in ways that are self-destructive. It's like, who doesn't want to be more honest with themselves and to serve others more or to admit when you're wrong more or to be aware of what your shortcomings or your character defects are and work towards 
the improvement of those, right? Like if you know you're kind of passive aggressive sometime and you're able to be honest with yourself about that, what a great thing to be able to start to become aware of when you're doing that and knock it off, you know? So I absolutely not only think or believe, but I know there are universal truths that are absolutely unmovable and unshakable and foundational to who and what we are. But the beauty is in our interpretation of it. And that's what's so terrifying about the censorship of free press and free speech that we're seeing now is that the fundamental human right of interpreting our experience in a way, the ways in which we do, and then sharing that interpretation of our experience with the world at large is being uh, stymied by the powers that be. And we're the ones that have put those entities into power, like the one we're looking at each other on right now, you know? And so uh, I think that's, that's something that people need to take very seriously because without our fundamental ability and right to take in life as we live it and build our awareness based on the perception of things that we experience and to share that experience without the ability to do that, we're truly not free. We're not free. And that's a, a gift and a right that God has given every sentient being is to be able to move through the world and your incarnation and determine what it all means and share with others how you see it. And I'm more concerned with free speech and free press for the people that I don't agree with. And there's a lot of people in media and politics, et cetera, that I don't think are in alignment with truth at all. And I think many of them are, are actually quite nefarious, if not evil in many cases. And I want them to be able to say whatever they can say, because when you silence one, you silence all eventually. And that's where it always ends up. I mean, I'm not even, wouldn't even consider myself that much of a history buff, but I do know the fundamental and incremental steps that go into a fascist totalitarian regime of removing all human rights and ultimately slaughtering a lot of innocent people. And one of the very first things that happens is silencing dissent and silencing intellectuals and, you know, killing people that wear glasses. And you know what I mean? We've seen this before, folks. And it starts with the burning of books and the, you know, burning of records and shutting down of websites and deleting people now in, in this age, the digital age of deleting people's YouTubes and LinkedIn's and stuff. It's just like, whoa. I mean, I'm actually now thinking about, you know, I was, I invited David Icke on my podcast, for example, and, uh, wow. been fascinated by his work. Some of the things he talks about, I think are very valid and have proven themselves to be true. Some of them are a little out there and I don't necessarily agree, but it's interesting nonetheless. And I think, um, he's someone that deserves to say whatever he wants, but, and then we're kind of, you know, working on scheduling and stuff now, but now I'm seeing like, uh, Brian Rose from London Real deplatformed off all of these things. And that's how he makes a living because he allowed someone, God forbid, to present a point of view that is counter to the mainstream narrative, which is about this whole COVID-19 thing and all that. So even if he was someone I adamantly disagreed with, like, for example, many of the points of view on a network like CNN or Fox or any of them, to me in my heart and in my gut, I'm just like, bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. That's not true. That's not, I mean, it's just like, you just know you're being lied to sometimes. Right. And I think that, but I would defend uh, to the death their right to present their points of view, you know? And so that's where it gets really crazy when it comes to, well, what's true and what's not true. That's up to each individual to decide. And, and that is, again, our fundamental human right to be able to hear all sides of every story and determine for ourselves as each individual 
what we believe and what we don't believe. And no one has the right to silence that. In my opinion, unless what you're saying is going to lead to physical violence against another person. In other words, like I'm on my way to your house right now to shoot you, <laughs> you know, or whatever, you know, whatever kind of threat. And that's why this amazing country that we have in the United States still exists and why so many amazing innovations and some of the best art ever and just the amazing mix of people we have from all different cultures and all different races from all over the world. We're all here and have been successful as we've been because of those fundamental allowances such as the First Amendment. I mean, that's the framework of this country. And, you know, obviously I'm aware that there's a really sad imperialistic beginning to this country. And that's very unfortunate. And I acknowledge that, but we are where we are. And what has made America really just incredible place to live and be has been the amount of freedom that we've had here. And when you see that freedom taken away, it's like, well, first they do it here. And then where else does it go after that? And I'm not, you know, being paranoid. It's just, if you look at history, there's definitely a sequence of events that has historically taken place. The good news is that now, for the time being, we still have independent media like you and I right here, and we can have these conversations freely. And if they get stifled by the channels uh, on which we're sharing them, then we'll find new channels and we'll find a way. It's, in other words, it's, like it's too late to put the genie back in the bottle. Too many people are awake now and are aware of the censorship. And I think even people that have a modicum of common sense can realize, all right, well, I hate that guy. So... He should be censored because I don't agree with him. I think a lot of people are going, shit, now a lot of very moderate people are also being censored that aren't radical at all, like a Brian Rose. I mean, that guy's a very like middle of the road personality in my estimation. But just by him giving the stage to someone who's more controversial now, he's being shutting down. I mean, I think that's got to be alarming to some people where they're going to stand up and build new platforms and not put up with this shit because we each deserve to interpret reality as we wish and share it as widely as we feel we want to or need to. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about mental health amidst all this, Luke, you know, mental and emotional health, because one conversation that I've been having with mutual friends of ours and colleagues in the wellness industry and just regular people that we talk to on the feeds here is that it seems that this deluge of information that we're all facing can really wreak havoc on people's sense of mental balance and mental health. It's almost like they're not sure what to believe or they feel overwhelmed by feelings of chaos and stress and overwhelm. And I'm curious in terms of mental and emotional wellness in navigating this current situation, what are some things that you recommend for people staying good mentally and for being able to trust that intuition and that barometer within themselves? How do people develop that? And how do you suggest people stay mentally healthy right now? What are some things you're doing? Oh, man. You know, it's funny, dude, because <laughs> I'm not really doing anything different in terms of immune function and just staying healthy physically for however real this threat is or not. I'm uncertain as to the validity of the physical element and what's going on with all that. I, it's, you know, another conversation. But in terms of staying healthy physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, I'm doing the same stuff that I'm always doing because whether or not there's a, a pandemic in the world or not, if I don't live my life the way that I've learned to live it, I'll create a pandemic in my own mind and I'll be living under anxiety, confusion, doubt, fear, just about 
life in general, even when everything's on the up and up. So practices like meditation and doing breath work and making sure that I get out into nature and everything that I do to support myself, human connection, just making sure, I mean, just something like as simple as I, I really make an effort to make sure I give my girlfriend really long hugs many times a day. And if she wasn't in my life, I would hug my dog more, <laughs> you know, ask a couple of friends to come over like, man, I, I need some hugs, get over here, you know, whatever, whatever the case may be. And, and even having human connection like this, that's virtual. I mean, I don't believe there's any separation between where you're sitting in Los Angeles and where I'm sitting right now, that separation is perceived. And so, you know, whether it's on the phone or in person or whatever, but it's keeping my relationship with, you know, I always find, I got to find a way to talk about this. It doesn't feel awkward to me. So many people are put off by the word God, and it's just like the easiest word for me to say when I talk about it. And I don't want to be apologetic either, but I always want people to be able to find their own relationship with whatever it is that created all of this and is is keeping all this you know spinning <laughs> all these plates spinning you know keeping the universe alive and and moving and stable it's just i just call it god so uh, anyone that doesn't relate with that word just think about what makes an acorn become an oak tree did you do that no well something did that <laughs> i don't know what it is and i don't purport to know what it is but i know it wasn't me so there's the existence of an energy field that's around us all the time. And the more I keep myself connected to that, whether it's by just praying inside using words or just feeling into my heart and feeling that connection with creation and with nature, or whether I even, you know, really sit down and talk to God in a, in a dialogue, reading spiritual books, doing all kinds of different meditations, you know, just I've tried every meditation I've ever heard of. I think I've tried it and I do some of them for a while. Then I move on to a different one. I use all sorts of different neuro tools. There's a lot of technologies now that assist with raising your level of consciousness and your spiritual perception. I have all sorts of different guided meditations and neuroacoustic tracks. And I'm wearing this thing on my ankle right now called the Apollo. That's this vibrating machine developed by a PhD neuroscientist named David Robin, uh, who's on my podcast coming up, who's a psychotherapist that works with psychedelics, really amazing guy. But he invented this thing that using these different frequencies of vibration can elicit a different mood. And so the one I have on right now is social and open, and it makes you feel very lubricated and GABA like as if you had like half a glass of wine. It's crazy. I mean, the stuff that's coming out now that really can assist, whether it's natural or more in the biohacking realm, I just do everything, you know? And I find that uh, the things that really move the needle for me most would be meditation of whatever type, taking ice baths. That's like my most, my number one nervous system balancer and just like regulator of. I'm feeling a little anxiety or a little depression today. It's like you get in an ice bath for five minutes at 40 degrees, like that shit's gone. You get out, you have a whole new perspective. Uh, doing breath work, the kundalini yoga, all of these things. Most of the really good things people sometimes refer to as biohacks or, or spirit hacks, as I like to call them, are free. And they just have to do with aligning ourselves with spirit, aligning ourselves with something greater than ourselves, something other than our animal nature and those instincts that are so often threatened and run us into the ground. Beautifully said. I think Whitney wanted to chime in and ask you a question, but I don't know that her voice is coming through your cans right now. 
I just discovered for whatever reason, only my voice is coming through my cans. So I've turned you guys back up on the speaker. So I'm all, I'm all for you, Whitney. I'm here. <laughs> now, I was just going to say that I can totally relate to the awkwardness of trying to figure out what word to use, whether it's God or spirit or universe. I always struggle with that too. And I, I find it so interesting because it's such a touchy subject in a way, but it doesn't really need to be. And it's such a great example of how words are are really all about our individual perceptions and they're so relative to our own experiences. And I found myself so much in my life trying to say things the right way. I don't want to offend somebody and I want to feel understood. But th- I think one of the benefits for each of us and for anyone who's creating content online, whether it's a podcast or social media or blog posts, is you begin to realize that you can upset somebody no matter what you say. <laughs> so, so you might as well just use whatever word makes sense for you. And, and I like the way that you handled it, which was just to put it into context. And it doesn't have to be an apology. And, and if somebody gets offended, hopefully they're open on, on having a conversation about it. And it's, it's interesting though, how many of us, I think you were talking about how one of your strengths is empathy. And, and perhaps it's just that you, you don't want to hurt anybody. You're empathetic to how they feel. And I can really relate to that. It's like this fear of, of accidentally offending somebody, but at the same time, it can also get in the way of us confidently expressing ourselves. So it's such a delicate balance. Yeah, I've really had a a kind of a difficult time with that because for me, I didn't get into spirituality with any sort of baggage in that area. I wasn't raised with any religion or having to go to church or synagogue or anything like that. So in 1997, when I put myself in the position to have to get sober and check myself into rehab, when I asked them for uh, medication the morning that I woke up <laughs> the first day, I went in and tried to get some meds, you know, like, do you guys have any Dilaudid or anything? And they said, oh, no, you're in pretty good shape. We took your vitals. You, you don't need any of that. And I said, well, I, yeah, I can't do this. And they said, well, uh, what we suggest is you go in your, your dorm room and that you pray. And it was like, uh, what? Pray? What does that even mean? But because I didn't have any real baggage around the idea of there being a God or religion or prayer. I just, it had not really occurred to me because it just seemed dumb and like a waste of time when doing drugs is so much faster when you don't feel right. But I had no other choice. So I went in that room and I did, I got on my hands and knees and I prayed like in the movies, man, with your, you know, like I'm on my knees leaning on the bed and I have my hands in front of me in prayer position. And I'm like going, I feel so stupid right now. But I was in so much pain and I was so desperate that I was willing to do it. And uh, in that moment, something happened to me and I just knew that something had happened and it continued to happen and it continues to this day. And it was that I opened my heart and my mind to something greater than myself and it changed me forever and continues to do so. And I was set free from that bondage. And so for me, my first kind of religious or God experience was that moment. And there was just no way that I could deny that something supernatural had happened to me. So I've never had a problem with it. But when I speak to other people that have baggage or preconceived ideas, or they're locked into some sort of atheism or as agnosticism or whatever, that you might have something really useful to say to them that might be helpful. But if you use the word God, then they're like, bump, nope, I'm done listening. And they shut it down. So it's not so much that I'm like embarrassed or I think people are going to think I'm a kook or a religious fanatic because I'm, I'm not even religious actually. 
but it's that I want to find the most useful way to communicate the truth that there is a benevolent, loving, all-knowing power and energy in our experience that we can connect to and receive help from. So whatever you want to call that, and I think that's, again, going back to the wisdom of the 12 steps, is that the way it was presented to me was, Luke, you have to find a God of your own understanding. And I like that. I'm punk rock. I don't want you to tell me what I have to believe. I'm a rebel too, Jason. (laughs) You tell me, you could, like, I'm so easy to use reverse psychology on. Just tell me to do something you don't want me to do, vice versa, and it'll happen. Completely, completely, (laughs) completely. And being told what to do. But if you tell me, Luke, here's what we suggest. It's a suggestion, not a rule. You seem to be not doing so well in life and thousands of other people before you have been just like you and completely lost and they've tried this formula and it's worked for them and it's a formula that you can make up. You just have to believe in something other than you and your ego. And so that's always my position and why I do kind of stumble around sometimes. Like, How can I say this in a way that doesn't turn people off or sound weird? But on the other hand, I might just start saying God all the time because if if someone's not at a bottom and they haven't failed at life enough that where they can't look past a fucking word, then maybe they got to go try to live life on their own terms for a while until the wheels fall off. And then they're like, call it whatever you want. Just help me, which is where I was, you know, I was, I was saying, God, okay, whatever you got. I mean, I always say I would have like went down to the airport and sold, you know, books at the Hare Krishnas if I thought it was going to get me out of the mess I was in. But I, I don't think it's, it is necessary to even use a word because there's no word that can describe the thing that we're trying to describe. It's beyond words. It's beyond description. It's just there. It's a thing. You know, it is all there is. And to actually take it even further, what's funny about it in my own experience and understanding is that it's actually futile to try to find God or see God because there's actually nothing else to see. In fact, it's, it's all that there is. And so, trying to find it actually misses the point because you just have to find what's not it, which is the intellect. Well, it's all it, but the things that are blocking us from having that experience is our own preconceived ideas, our own intellect, our own trauma, our closed-mindedness, our lack of humility, our arrogance, our spiritual pride, all of those things prevent us from seeing and experiencing what is always here and has always been here which is that thing called God that doesn't need a name. It doesn't even need to be talked about. It just needs to be experienced. And you don't need a church or a religion or anyone to experience it, but you can also experience it there because it is everywhere. So thank you, Whitney, for you know helping me to get over the habit of tiptoeing around that. It's like, it's my experience. And I guess if you're going to lose someone, you're going to lose them and they're going to find it their own way. They're going to, you know, they're going to, they're going to worship the God of intellect or science or whatever appeals to them. And eventually they're going to end up in the same place when they leave this particular incarnation. <laughs> I think it's, it's so interesting too, because the idea of losing people is, is always so interesting, especially for us in the social media world or podcasting world. It's like, we're afraid they'll never, they'll never come back. And if we lose people, then our whole careers are going away and we get so attached to the numbers. And it also is almost like a coming from a place of the ego where we want to control people. Like how do they like us and controlling their perception of us or controlling whether we all get along. And I think 
there's so much more freedom if we relax and let go and just be ourselves and trust that the right people will stay and try not to be too concerned with whether or not people agree with us at this time. And I really am very interested in that. And I read a really great book. If you're if you're interested, Luke, and anyone else listening, it's called Status Anxiety. And it talks about the history of our big desires and fears around status and how anything like our numbers and how we get along socially and the, the hierarchies and all of that and how it, it taps into so many deep roots or cultural expectations and, and desires to survive. And, and it's just always interesting when I can check in and see like, why am I doing this or saying this in a certain way? Am I trying to control somebody else? Am I trying to protect myself? Am I trying to survive? Is it just some old misconception? And that always helps me gain a lot of clarity on, on my own motivations and my actions and gives me freedom to let go and trust and, and be more myself, less worried about how other people react to me. That's so good. Yeah, that's an addiction that I've been working a long time to overcome is the addiction for approval and being liked. There's like two sides to breaking it. One side is the awareness of it as you just beautifully illustrated is that self-awareness and the self-honesty of going, wow, yeah, why am I doing this? Why am I doing that? Why do I need people to like me and all that? And then the other part is in uncovering and healing the shame. This is my experience, healing the shame that I picked up at various points in life that, that caused me to think that there's something about me that is unlovable or unlikable. And that if those people don't stay, whether they be on social media, real life, whatever, if I don't get that approval, then that's affirming the belief I had about myself that I'm not worthy of their love or their friendship or whatever. And it's, it's a really, I think it's a, a major human hurdle that we all have to overcome. And it's one that's really, it's, it's tricky because it's like nature's designed us to be social creatures, right? And so there's a reason why we fear rejection. It's because evolutionarily speaking, if we were rejected by our tribe of 50 or 60 people that we roamed around with, we would literally die to predation, weather, et cetera, if we cannot survive alone right? And so we need some kind of tribe, family, etc. So it's, it really is like instilled in us by nature, by God, to instinct for wanting to be liked, to be accepted, to feel safe, to feel like we're not going to be abandoned. So we're working against something that's, it's like trying not to eat or drink water. You know, it's just, it's so fundamental to who we are. It's such a potent, or try not to have sex. And that's an even better example. You know, it's just, it's instilled in us as part of our survival mechanism. And that's where the higher self has to build these awarenesses and practices and, you know, use and exert our will to go like, nope, I'm just going to be who I am and get on the other side of that and see like, all right, a few people left, but there's a couple remaining and I really only need a couple. We actually, you know, in one sense, comparatively, uh, speaking of the evolutionary piece, we need fewer people than we used to, right? Because now we're just, we're all connected and integrated and we have technology and we have all those things. We live in different types of communities now and the world's so populated and you have transportation. If one group doesn't like you, are like, fuck you, I'm going down the block and there's a, a new tribe, you know, but we still have that fear. And that fear is, we're only able to overcome that through that self-awareness and through getting over it. Just like when you walk down the street and you want to have sex with everyone, doesn't mean you have to do it. There's a higher self present also that can go, 
not appropriate. Don't look at them that way. Don't talk to them that way. Mind your manners. Keep your genitalia covered. I mean, we're able to have some authority over these impulses we have. But I think that one for me, the one of wanting to be liked and be approved of and accepted and not to be abandoned, that's a really deep one, you know, that I've had to work on a lot and continue to do so. Yeah, it's it's huge. I'm personally very passionate about this subject matter because I, like you, Luke, have struggled a lot with that throughout my life and had that underlining story. And it can often get triggered by social media or even podcasting or what anything that where I can measure how many people like something or listen to something, watch something. All of those metrics are really challenging for me. And yet my career is very intertwined with that because there's more pros than cons. But it's tough, you know, because your career is also your survival. So you're making money by doing all of these things. And so what I have to work on constantly and and I, I really enjoy talking about is being very, very conscious of those reactions. And I think even for people that don't use social media as part of their careers, it's still really tough. I mean, <laughs> I just hear it all the time. People just wanting to get more likes on whatever platform they're in. And it, it, they just get sucked in. And then a lot of these social media platforms or online platforms in general are based on that desire. So just like anything in society, especially when it comes to the media or or anything marketing related as social media is, these companies are kind of encouraging us to be concerned with status. And so the more that they can get us focused on the numbers and aware of how people perceive us and trying to shape ourselves to get people to like us, it's it's actually a huge part of our lives that we might not even realize until we step away from it and analyze it. And it, it's tough, just like anything, like you were talking about addictions. It's similar in some ways to being addicted to alcohol because that's such a huge part of our culture. You know, people go out and drink socially. And if you have trouble with alcohol, it's really tough to disconnect from that. You have to have so much awareness and training and support when something is that big in our society, especially if it's related to how you socialize. Amen, sister. Yeah, it's interesting how you're talking about the tech platforms really quite scientifically hitting on that part of us that wants to be liked and be approved of. That's really the way that they suck you in because you present yourself in a certain way and then you get feedback on that and then you start fine-tuning and editing the way that you present yourself to get that dopamine reward button hit again and again and again, ding, 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 like, like, comment, comment, follower, follower. And it's really smart in terms of marketing to make a very sticky platform that keeps people engaged because they've figured out the human nature and how hypnotic it is to continually be getting that instinct tapped on. Absolutely. And then and then there's so much data that's being able to be collected about what things we like and we respond to. And yeah, it's fascinating. I, Jason recently was um, sharing with me how he's trying to be more aware of his privacy. And I think that's something we could touch upon today, Jason. I know you, you wanted to get into a little bit about technology with Luke. <laughs> We've gone on a lot of different segues or tangents today, but uh, Jason, I'd love for you to share why you've been more concerned with, with your privacy online. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, 
part of this conversation of technology right now and freedom of speech and dissemination of truth and this macro kind of conversation we've been interweaving through this this day together i was watching a feed with david wolf and he was talking about how apple and google and tiktok and a lot of these platforms are doing such an just a masterful job already of information gathering down to even on tiktok they were discussing that the app is actually tracking our keystrokes not just our search history not just the terms we're searching for not just you know taking snapshots of the ip addresses and all of those things but literally on some of these platforms they're getting down to the keystroke and that was enough for me to go okay i think i need to be taking my privacy a little more seriously not because i'm necessarily sharing things that could get me in any kind of legal trouble although it may because i've been talking about conspiracy subjects and immunization luke which i definitely want to touch on with you but more so that are there any things that i can do or put in place that can limit the amount of information that i am sharing with these entities and how they're collecting it so recently one thing that i did was i stopped using uh, chrome with rare exceptions like this recording and i started using a browser called brave and apparently brave has safeguards in place where they're not doing any kind of information harvesting like google is doing and even small steps like that make me feel better about how i'm searching what i'm doing so even just just small steps like that getting a different browser i i don't know i i just feel more secure as a result of doing things like that honestly dude i'm so behind on that shit i probably have siri and alexa and all these things listening to me fart walking around the house and have no idea it's crazy the amount of data that tech is collecting and sharing for a number of different reasons and honestly i've been kind of lazy around tech privacy and researching different browsers to use and making sure that my devices are all turned off. I, I've never even been the guy who puts tape over my computer video camera. <laughs> you know, like even normies do that. And I'm just like, ah, what are, they, what are you going to do? You know? So yeah, you know, I don't, I don't know what to do about that particular piece exactly because it's like, I feel like you'd have to take so many steps to truly privatize your life and you'd have to really divorce yourself from so, so much technology or just go to great efforts to stop it. And also there's kind of, you know, apart from using a completely different browser, uh, as you mentioned, but there's also, there's no way of really testing to see if your efforts are completely successful and if you're living your life in complete privacy or not. That's a good point. I mean, I think you know, it's so bizarre, dude. I'll be talking to my girlfriend about something and the next thing I know, I turn on my computer and Amazon or whatever is like suggesting that thing to me. And I'm thinking, wait, did I even search for that? I don't think I did. You know, <laughs> really, really spooky stuff going on. And it's just like, I always find it when people request to go on lives, I always find it interesting when a random person just request to go on your live that you don't know. I'm like, what would even happen? I've never approved one of them, but I just noticed a couple other people uh, beside you had. Yeah. It's like Dolores, the realtor 96. You're like, okay, Dolores, the realtor. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not looking for an appraisal on my live feed, but why are you? I think that could be fun though. That, I mean, talk about getting uncomfortable. It's maybe one day, Luke, you should just pick a day and say, anyone who wants to come on, come on and just 
see what happens. I like that. I think I'm actually going to start just approving all of them and just be like, well, here you are. <laughs> what have you got? <laughs> I mean, it takes a lot of courage to request and be, you know, especially somebody who's probably looks up to you or listens to your podcast. I would personally would feel super intimidated. You guys, let's the three of us make a pack to do Instagram roulette. And just let anybody on. That's pretty good. Yeah. The stories will be amazing. I guess I'm never really doing anything that important anyway. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, I guess I wouldn't do it in the middle of an interview, but oftentimes I'm just live streaming, playing guitar, just screwing around. I guess maybe I'll meet someone interesting. Who knows? Absolutely. Did you ever use chat roulette? Do you know what that is? I've not heard of chat roulette. Wasn't that what it was called, Jason? It was something roulette and it was uh was pretty- it was chat roulette, yes. Big back in 2013 for sure, because Jason and I actually ended up meeting like one of the chat roulette stars who transitioned or he used it for to become big on YouTube. And basically it was a platform where you could go on. I think it still exists in some forum or another. It was a little bit ahead of its time, but you could go on and just like video chat with random strangers. And so of course there were a lot of like pornography things happening, but for the most part, it was just average people bored on there chatting with one another. And all sorts of entertaining things could happen and nice connections with people. And, and I used it a few times. And I think it had been around for at least a few years before it became big in 2013 and then kind of faded away. But it, it was really, really fascinating. And I think a great example of how so many of us are just looking for connection. And actually, I would think right now during COVID-19, that would be the perfect platform. All these people at home alone, bored, lonely, just wanting to talk to someone. So you could create your own version of that through your Instagram live and have some fun. That's funny. You know, I'm going to date myself and go back to something I totally forgot about. But when I was... must have been like in the 70s when I was pretty little, there was like... You could pick up your phone and get on a party line. Oh, par- dude, party line. Yeah, there's a party line. Do you remember that? Yeah, because I was also born in the 70s. Yes, I remember just be party random, lines. There'd just be random fools on the phone. You didn't know who they were. They were kind of in your area and just, I don't remember how they work, but you'd just be on with multiple people, like on a group call, shooting the shit. That reminds me of something else I saw. I meant to show- send it to you, Jason, because I feel like you would have appreciated this much more than me which was a bunch of people from, um, I think, ESPN, like some of the anchors or people that worked there, they created a Zoom version of that party line. And it started off with, I don't know, five of them. And each of them invited famous sports people or random celebrities they knew to see who could get the most famous person onto the Zoom. And I'm not going to spoil it. You have to watch it. Most of them are sports people that I didn't really know. Some of them I did. And then there was like one musician, I think, and one actor from a TV show I, I knew, or a couple actors. And it is hilarious. It was a 10-minute long video. And just like these celebrities showing up to this Zoom, having no idea why they were there, who and like they just knew somebody invited them, but they didn't know what was happening. And it's just it's really sweet in a way because, and funny because you just see people are at home. They have nothing better to do. And they just think, all right, I guess I'll go on Zoom and see what happens. And I mean, this is all so new to us. It's it's never quite happened like this before. And just seeing all the random ways that we're looking for connection with one another is really cool. 
Well, I'm going to start approving people randomly that try to join my IG lives. Do it, Luke. It's going to be so amazing, honestly. Let's see what happens. So I have something, Luke and Whitney, I'm curious about. I feel sometimes conflicting parts of my consciousness, or let, let me say desires. Let's just talk desires for a second. I've lived in big cities my whole life. LA for 13 years, New York, San Francisco, grew up in Detroit. I've just, I've just been a city guy my whole life. And there's an energy of art and music and connection and community, in particular living in LA for so long that I, I love. It's probably one of the biggest reasons. It's actually the biggest reason why I continue to choose to live in Los Angeles is the community and the art and the, the vibrancy I feel here. And much like you, Luke, I have a deep affinity, maybe borderline obsession with tiny house, off-grid living, modern design, that Zen aesthetic. Like literally every time you post something on Instagram, I'm like, 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 I'll unlike it just so I can like it again. <laughs> because you and I share this affinity, as does Whitney, of you know, this idea of moving to Utah or Colorado and living off-grid in, in a beautiful you know, for me, a Zen tiny house that I would build myself. And it's been a dream I've had for probably 10 years now. And I'm curious because I feel a conflict of wanting to stay in community, wanting to be with this great group of friends and colleagues, yourself included here in LA that we have access to, that we we get to hang out with and share resources with. But there's a part of my soul that wants to get the fuck out and go to Utah and go to Colorado, go maybe even out of the country and live in the wilderness and be the fuck away from everyone. And I feel my soul is kind of leaning more into that feeling, but I feel a conflict within myself. And I'm curious because you and I have such a similar vibe and aesthetic in, in I guess, our vision of where we ultimately want to live. Every time I see you post, I'm like, bro, amen, amen. But What's your relationship to that? Because you've been in LA for a long time, brother. And sometimes I see your stuff and, and I'm just like, man, is this dude just going to like pick up and leave? Like, why is he still here? You know, because I feel that pull too within myself. And I'm curious what keeps you in LA and why you haven't just run to the wilderness already. Well, quitting LA is like quitting the mafia, man. You know, no matter how hard you try to keep dragging you back in. <laughs> Legit. That's a really true statement. Legit. <laughs> but don't people say the same thing about New York? And I always feel so amazed when somebody decides to move to LA from New York because it's like a lot of New Yorkers are like, I'll never live in LA. I'll never be an LA person. And they come out here and they're like, actually, this is pretty nice. I've noticed that a lot in recent years. Some years ago, I mean, almost every New Yorker hated LA and then all of a sudden they all started moving here and then the rents went up. Uh, but no, seriously, I've been here for 30 years or maybe it's even more. I'm, math is not my strongest suit, but I moved to LA in 1989 when I was 19 years old. And I think I've been saying 30 years for like three years. I probably was too early and now I'm too late, but whatever it is, long ass time. And um you know, man, it's like Jason was saying, the opportunities to connect with community here and just the lifestyle of having a million yoga studios and sound bath studios and meditation studios and the beach and the mountains and so many like-minded people and amazing health food stores and organic food of every variety all over the place. It's like the addiction of convenience to just having everything at your disposal. Yes, that is is kind of what it is. Very right? good I mean, even when yeah. I when I travel, sometimes I realize how spoiled I am. That just within 
you know, 15, 20 minutes of where I live, there's just endless possibilities of what to do with myself. And during this government shutdown, I've also observed, you know, as we discussed earlier, I live in Laurel Canyon, a, a little bit outside of the city, or, you know, eight minutes or so, but it feels pretty out of the city. I don't give a shit about what's going on in town. <laughs> like, I have no desire to like go anywhere or do anything. And I think that's partially due to the fact that I love my amazing girlfriend and she's in the house. And so all is well. We have her cat and my dog and it's just chill, but I'm also really a homebody. So this has been a great opportunity for me to test what it would be like to live somewhere that's a bit more remote. Because every time I think about moving somewhere, I think, I don't know, would I get bored? Would I get stir crazy because there's nothing to do? And I, I want to go out and you know have opportunities to visit with people and socialize and things like that. But now that I'm not doing that, I realize I don't actually miss it at all. And I could be living in the middle of anywhere right now and I would be fine. Now, I don't know how long that's going to last. Maybe in two months from now, if this shit keeps up, I might be going crazy. But for right now, I feel really good. So that's a hopeful sign for me. But I think more than anything, what motivates me to explore the options is just living in any major city is just the antithesis of being healthy. And I don't want to bum anyone out that lives in a city, but the more educated I get on all of the various types of pollution from electro smog in the form of EMFs to air pollution, to noise pollution, to just everything that happens to you when you live in a city with a lot of other people is very real. And I become more and more aware of that. And I also just feel myself getting kind of worn out with traffic and noise and stress. It's just, I think I just get acclimated to it and I get used to it like a frog boiling in water. But then when I leave town and even go out to Joshua Tree or Ojai or somewhere for the weekend, the minute I leave LA County and get out into nature, I can just feel my nervous system take this huge sigh of relief. And when I experience that contrast, that's when I go, what the hell am I living in the city for? That place sucks. You know, I don't really notice it when I'm here. It's just, it really is this phenomenon every time I leave. Like my dad lives in Colorado uh, in a town called Carbondale. It's near Aspen. And that's where I spent a lot of time as a kid. He's always lived there his whole life and you know my whole life. And every time I get out there, it's like I get off the plane at the little Aspen airport and I look around and I go, what the fuck am I doing? Why don't I just live here? And so that's kind of, I'm in this purgatory sort of space right now because I really don't want to live in a city anymore, but I also don't want to live somewhere where it snows and is freezing. And I like having access to record my podcast in person. And so I really am in this place of just kind of trusting in God and in the greater plan that I'm going to end up somewhere that maybe is perhaps a happy medium where I can be relatively accessible to record and make the content that I make and also be able to spend much more time in nature and just being a lower population density. I mean, you look at human illnesses of all types, they are exponentially higher wherever people are smashed together in the way that we are in cities. And, you know, I, this, it's my personal belief that this is why in a city like New York, this virus or whatever this thing is that's going on has seemingly affected so many more people. 
because everyone's on top of each other. And also because it's a side note, because it's cold. And so more people get the flu shot there, which is a whole other thing. The flu shot makes you test positive for COVID-19 apparently, which is really interesting. But um, I just feel when I get out of out of densely populated areas that I just feel so much better. And so I do have a pretty strong intention to find a solution. I just don't know how far off grid I can go and still create the kind of content that I do with the level of quality that I'm able to. I think if I was, you know, if you're as big as a Joe Rogan, you could live in freaking middle of the tundra somewhere and people would fly out and come be on your show. I don't know that I'm quite to that place yet. I think I could probably get out of the city by a couple hours and still get people to come out live to the studio. And then, you know, I also can do traveling and go record batches of shows when I when I go other places, which I've been doing for the past three and a half years also. But yeah, man, I'm with you and I don't know what the the solution is. I just know that I really don't want to be in the middle of this city, especially a city that has 5G network in place. And that's, you know, it's a really long conversation to explain to people all about that because there's a lot of misinformation. But I will just say that there's two phases of 5G rolling out around the world. And right now we're in the first phase, which is bad, but it's really just an upgrade of 4G. It's not the really super gnarly, super scary phase two of 5G, which is something called millimeter waves, which is when shit gets super gnarly. And I, I literally would never live anywhere for five minutes that has like the real 5G up and running. That's how dangerous it is. But right now, basically, we just have an enhanced 4G where they're just using the existing infrastructure and building it out even more. Uh, but the problem right now with the current 5G in a city like LA is not that it's millimeter waves, which you know even pretty dim-witted people understand are very dangerous. It's just that they're now piggybacking on 3G and 4G, building more towers, and they're just they're just contributing to a number of different frequencies. So now it's not only that we have more radiation, but it's a wider spectrum in terms of the range of those frequencies, and that's the current 5G, which is which is also bad. But that's going to be present, you know, the level of radiation and how it affects people that are electrically sensitive like I am is going to be present in any major city. And the only way to really avoid that is to get in a lower population density area, at least where you spend the most of your time. So that's kind of my goal. And in closing, also add one further level of complexity to my personal situation, and that is my lovely girlfriend that I've been speaking so highly of is really excited to be in LA after being in New York City for 15 years. And she feels like she's already living in somewhere that's really healthy and happy and you know <laughs> has much more space. She's like, dude, I've been dreaming of moving to LA forever and you want to move me to some small town? I'm not down with that. So I don't know. It's really, again, it's like a surrender and a trust and just being open to the possibilities and exploring a little bit and probably compromising now that it's just, it's not just me making the decisions. I have to be somewhere where my partner feels, you know, vibrant and is able to be successful and live her best life also. But it's it's tough, dude. Even in the lockdown, I drive around town and I'm just like, oh my God, I drive for 20 minutes and I have a headache from all the cell towers and shit. It's just out of control. And if if you become educated about EMFs, it's, it's even worse because then you have like the psychosomatic nocebo, like negative placebo effect that you feel even worse because you expect to feel bad. Yeah. And this gets into the whole like Bruce Lipton, Joe Dispenza quantum reality where you could and should be able to mitigate some of the effects of those energies by building up your own 
auric field and not allowing those fearful thoughts to lower your defenses, which is what happens. So it's like a law of diminishing returns on that uh, double jeopardy situation because you're, whether you're conscious of it or not, EMFs are hurting you in a city big time. In any, any big city like this, you're getting fucking fried straight up. I mean, I've got, you know, 20 interviews on it with some of the most brilliant people in the world and they all scientifically validate that fact. But if you don't know it, it's not quite as bad as if you know it and you're also getting fried because then you have your conscious mind that's going, wow, I'm like stopped at a red light and there's a 5G tower, you know, 30 feet from my head. And that compounds the negative impact. So it's, it's really tricky. But for me, that's the EMF pollution and the air and noise pollution are a good reason to not live in a city. Yeah, I, this is actually a, one thing as we get close to wrapping up, because we've had you for almost two hours, brother, and I just appreciate your wisdom, your heart, your time so much. But you opened up a new little window I wanted to discuss with you and make sure we got to is, you know, much like yourself and Whitney, the three of us, I think, are so incredibly passionate about wellness and human optimization and health. And, and certainly, I've learned so much from you in terms of supplements and biohacking. You were the first person to ever turn me on to you know, molecular hydrogen and a lot of other stuff at the biohacking conference a few years ago, you know, getting into the saunas and the ozone chambers and, and, you know, the zappers and antiviral stuff. I mean, I could go on and on and on about all the technologies and supplements and nutraceuticals that the three of us know and love and use. I have noticed myself just piggybacking on what you said, Luke, about getting perhaps orthorexic to a degree where I feel like I have to do everything on level 100 all the time. And realizing that sometimes my desire to, you know, do the sauna and the, the cryo and all the supplements, I mean, I take probably like 40 supplements a day. I sometimes wonder, I'm like, dude, are you doing this out of fear right now? Or are you doing this out of the fact that you love it and it actually does make you feel good? And for me, on a psychological level, it's a very fine line of me questioning whether I'm doing these things because I'm afraid of getting sick. And if I don't do them, I'm lowering my defenses. Versus, dude, you got into this because it was joyful and you had fun with it. That's why you got into cooking and nutrition and all of this stuff. So, I don't know, you, you sparked something in me of considering that fine line between taking it too far and me freaking out if I'm not doing everything humanly possible for my health and letting it go and saying, you know what, I'm doing the best I can and someday this meat suit I'm in is going to deteriorate and die and I just got to do the best I can do. Such a great point and so brilliantly articulated. And I'm just going to answer very honestly <laughs> because I enjoy calling myself out. I'm neurotic as fuck, okay? <laughs> and I see the root of a lot of the practices that I participate in and the amount of time and energy I put in to focusing on my physical body and my well-being. I mean, if you follow me around my house for a day, it's ridiculous. I mean, if I even just gave you what I did today, we would be here for another hour. But all the different things, the pills that I pop, the things I inject into my body, all the different devices. And I mean, there's probably like $100,000 worth of equipment in this house. You could open up your own like cancer healing center with all the shit I have in here. I'm not even exaggerating or nor am I bragging or anything. It's just that, you know, I spend my money on that instead of other things. But, um, there is a fine line there in that you so accurately identified in that one side of it on the healthy side, I mean, in terms of mental health side is that, okay, 
I've been gifted this vehicle called a body that the creator has given me to have the human experience here on the material plane. And it's the most complex, beautiful, fascinating car you could ever want to have. And it was given to me for free. And I have a duty to the creator that gave me this body to have this human experience and to earn these, to learn these earth lessons to care for that body like I would my own child or a really expensive car. You know, it's like imagine I, you know, I ask you what your dream car is, Jason, and you're like, oh, it's a, you know, 2021 Lamborghini X7, whatever. And I'm like, cool, be right over. And I drop that off in your garage and you go out and, pour crude oil in the gas tank and run it into every fucking curb you can. You know, it's like you wouldn't want to disrespect such a beautiful gift. And that's the positive way of looking at the body is I'm going to work out and I'm going to eat whatever foods seem to be the most pure and clean and in alignment with my biology. And I'm going to do everything I can to be healthy and I'm going to take care of this body so I feel good and I look good and I'm honoring the gift. And that's the positive side. And I think that that's really valid. And I think most people would be well served to err on that side more than they do based on the levels of disease and degradation we see as a species on a whole. The neurotic side of it, and when I say I'm neurotic as fuck, I'm not being self-deprecating. I love myself and I love how crazy I am and I love how obsessive I am. And I'm with a partner that I think for the first time in my life loves that or else just doesn't even notice (laughs) parts of me. I mean, she notices, but she just thinks it's funny. You know, she doesn't like resent me because I'm such a nut. You know, she just is like, well, there he goes again. That's cute kind of thing. And she enjoys some of it because I'm, you know, if something's wrong with her, I can probably fix it too. I'm sort of an armchair doctor here. But the other side of it is, and I've really looked into this because people have called me out on it. Like, dude, seriously, why do you have to be so extra with all this shit? Like, live your life. And it was my friend Neil Strauss that really called me out on it one day uh, in a kind and loving way. He said, Luke, why are you into all this biohacking stuff? And like, why do you go so far with everything? And I said, well, man, I just, you know, I want to feel good. I I don't want to ever get sick unnecessarily. I want to live a long, healthy, prosperous life. And he said, Well, what I think it might be true, he said, but what I think it is, is I think it's all about control. Because as a kid, because he knows my past, he says, as a kid, you were in a lot of very traumatic experiences in which you had no control. And as you've grown into adulthood, you've learned that one thing you can exert control over in order to feel safe, because of course, in those situations I described, I felt very unsafe and vulnerable and was and was harmed as a result of my vulnerability. He said that now as an adult, you do everything you can to control your entire environment 24-7 in an effort to not get hurt, you know, or something along those lines. And so he said, this is all your childhood trauma coming up as control issues for you. And I was like, wow. You know what? I I think there's a lot of truth in that. And it goes back even into my childhood when I first started doing drugs. I mean, that's why I did drugs was to control my perception of my reality because my reality was so painful. At 8 years old, I mean, I'd smoke a bunch of weed and like I could change my whole universe in 5 minutes or any of the other things I adopted later on that were even more mind-altering, you know? And so I've always been someone who likes to change my environment or the way I feel about my environment or perceive my environment on a dime. And I want to have control over it all the time. And I do. I mean, I came in to do this podcast and I was like, hmm, 
I'm like 5% groggy and like brain foggy. What can I do? And I, I made a cocktail with some paracetam and a bunch of cayenne pepper extract and some uh, different herbs that are the precursors to neurotransmitters. And I put uh, a quarter modafinil. I injected some uh, procaine into my glute. I mean, I did like, <laughs> I did enough shit to like kill a fucking horse in five minutes just to come do this interview. And I put on my little vibrating thing, my Apollo on my ankle. I was like, now I'm ready to have a conversation. And so I very much was about controlling the way that I feel so I can control this experience. Now, is, that, is there anything wrong with that? I don't know. I think that where that fine line gets defined is in our ability to be honest with ourselves and acknowledge, wow, perhaps I'm a little out of balance here. And educated with that information, I can elect to stay out of balance or not, but I'm going to do it from a place of awareness rather than a place of blindness and ignorance. In other words, if somebody calls me out on something and says, wow, you're really obsessive and kind of compulsive about all of these biohacks, rather than being defensive and projecting that back on them or whatever the case may be, I can really take a look at it and go, yeah, you're right. Wow, I wonder why I'm like that. Oh, I see. I had these experiences as a kid and they kind of you know, created a fertile environment for me to be someone who feels like I need to protect myself all the time. Wow. Well, maybe I could look into that and maybe there's a way that I could actually feel safer and more free and that I don't have to control things in the way that I do with such commitment. And I'm willing to explore that. And also in the meantime, would you please hand me that needle so I can shoot peptides in my elbow? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, I'm willing to evolve and change and outgrow these attachments at any given moment. I'm willing to surrender them. So far, that hasn't happened for me. And I've even prayed, you know, in ceremony on, on this issue, like, and even had kind of a fear, am I going to walk out of this ayahuasca retreat and like never take a supplement ever again? Cause I realize how attached I am to it. And I don't want to let go of that attachment because I feel like I need to protect myself and be safe and healthy. And then I'm in there on the medicine and I just kind of go, Luke, you're just a nut. That's who you are. Chill, like roll with it. You're going to be this way until nature decides that it's time to evolve into a different experience, you know? And so I have a very playful relationship with these practices and I do my best to keep an objective awareness about how extreme I am. I will also add that it's kind of my job, man. Is me trabajo. You know what I'm saying? It's like, I'm the guinea pig that's going to try all this shit and then report to whoever wants to listen to me on what was effective and what wasn't and save everyone the time and energy of doing it themselves or even in possibly harming themselves from doing it wrong or too much. Like I'm actually willing to take some risk and try some things out and I'm sure I get things wrong sometimes. And when I do, I tell people like, oh, hey, this thing's cool, but be careful. Uh, a great example would be uh, ketamine, which I think is a very useful tool can be used in a somewhat psychedelic fashion. It's used quite widely in different therapeutic models by psychotherapists <laughs> and you know psychologists, et cetera, right now. And um, I would experiment periodically with um, something like ketamine and use it for meditations and journey and have an intention and find something I want to work on. And a couple nights ago, I had a new version of it and it was the same milligrams, but it was a lozenge instead of a nose spray. And I, I took one and I lost my freaking mind. And went so far out that I literally, during the experience, and this is going to sound crazy because it was, I thought that I had entered into another dimension 
and lost my body and that I was not going to be able to get back into being Luke in my body laying in bed with my girlfriend who was asleep and had no idea any of this was going on. That's what a K-hole I went into, just trying to have a, a nice, light little meditation before I went to sleep. And so, you know, was that extreme? Yeah, it was extreme as hell. Was it an accident? Completely. Am I trying to abuse ketamine for like recreational purposes? Not at all. Not doing that. Never going to do that. That's not my path. But now I can come back and say, hey, I think that for some people, this particular substance could be useful if done intentionally. And now I would add like, please make sure you have professional guidance and be mindful of the dose, the poisons in the dose. So like that was a great example of me kind of like not even intentionally pushing the envelope a little bit and coming back going, okay, overdid it a little too much there. That was not what I was going for. And now I can be the one that, you know, can give heat a warning to people that are experimenting with things like microdosing and psychedelics and whatever they might be doing. So. I'm personally kind of having fun with it and I have made a career in part out of that, you know, that side of what I do. A lot of the other stuff is just in consciousness and meditation and spirituality, but I do like the physical stuff. And in closing, the last thing I'll say is you asked me a very loaded question, one that I've thought a lot about. In closing, I have many people that ask me, like, couldn't you just live a normal life and be healthy without doing all that stuff? And my answer to that is not really. No, you can't because we've gone too far out of balance with the cosmos, with mother nature, with the planet, with our food systems, with our water systems, with our energetic environmental systems. If you were a hunter gatherer person pre agricultural revolution, yeah, you won't need any of this bullshit red light therapy, PMF, saunas, supplements. No, you would not need any of that. Have you ever seen pictures from the Weston Price research of hunter-gatherer people that he went around the world and studied? These people are beasts, man. Perfect teeth, perfect bone structure, just muscle-bound, could like, you know, throw a car across the parking lot. And they didn't have any freaking supplements or biohacks because they had not been exposed to hybridized, industrialized, food, nor were they exposed to EMFs or fluoride in the water or had not been vaccinated or any of the, you know, um, circumcised, not breastfed, all of the things that are part and parcel to being a modern human weren't present. So yeah, if you could go back in time, I think you could be very healthy and not do any of this shit. Could you do that now? I really don't believe you can. But that's not to say that everyone needs to do all the stuff I do. You could still be very happy. And I think as long as someone meditates and they have you know, supportive, loving relationships, they're going to be fine. But if you shop at Ralph's and you eat GMO food and you drink tap water and you live next to a cell tower and your Wi-Fi router is under your bed, you're going to have fucking problems, period. Like you just are. Biology is very fragile. The human protoplasmic meat suit that we've been gifted is extremely fragile and it goes out of balance very easily. It's also very resilient, but it needs tools to maintain that resilience when there's so many forces of anti-nature working against it. So that's my take on it. And I'm going to just be as obsessive as I goddamn please for right now because I have a lot of fun. <laughs> I think that's such a, a key component too, is enjoying it. And it's like anything else, when you love something, when you enjoy the process of it, then just 
do it. Like if somebody doesn't enjoy something, then maybe they shouldn't be doing it that way. Exactly. Right. And I think the the great thing is with all the convenience that we have during this time that we live is we have access to things all over the place. And whenever people tell me that it's too hard to live healthy, I question that because there's so many different ways to get access to healthy changes in your life. And, and as you said, it could be as simple as meditating. It can be as simple as starting to grow your own food or ordering healthier food online and having it delivered to you. And there's just so many avenues you can go down. I think the hardest part is starting and finding a way to enjoy it or finding what you enjoy. It's similar to the plant-based diet when people say, well, I don't like that food. <laughs> it's kind of funny to me because there's so many plant-based foods out there. How can you possibly say you don't like plant-based food, period, when there's different versions and you know, even just a single type of food like an apple. There's so many different types of apple. You can't just say that you don't like apples as a whole category unless you've tried them all. And I think the difference is, is that the three of us really enjoy experimenting with all of this. And this is why this is our career. But some people don't enjoy it as much as us. And, and that's fine. I think as long as they can do the basics, as you mentioned, that's, that's the most important element of it. And if they think that we're doing too much or too obsessed about this, like, as you said, <laughs> it's all just a matter of perspective and pleasure. Yeah. And also acknowledging that we're all going to leave this body. And I don't trick myself into thinking that if I take all these supplements and do all the things that I do, that I'm going to live till I'm 500 or something. Like I have no desire to stay in this body one second longer than the creator that made this body and put my spirit into it wants me to. Like if I'm supposed to walk out of this house right now, knock on wood, I hope not because I want to stick around for a while. But if I get hit by a bus and it's my time to go, whatever. It doesn't matter how many goddamn supplements I took. You know what I mean? So it's, it's, for me, it's not about like trying to be here forever. It's just, I want to feel as good as I possibly can while I'm here. A, and as you pointed to, that it just happens to be something that I'm super into and passionate about. And I understand that many people aren't, they just find it boring. I mean, I observe sometimes um, Allison here and, you know, she's, I mean, she's healthy and like, I think she's sick less than me and probably like if you compared us, I don't know about our lab work, but just based on like how awesome she feels most of the time. And granted, she's a few years younger than I, but I don't think she needs to do all the stuff I'm doing because she feels great. So she's fine. She just is like has a really strong constitution is kind of my take on it. But I'm always fascinated that she doesn't really give a shit about all the resources here at the house. Like she could be taking all my supplements and doing all my things and like for free. And she's just like, whatever. She doesn't even notice because she's not really that interested in that stuff. You know, she just, she's a shaman. She's living her life, doing her thing. She doesn't like, she doesn't get off on like digging through the supplement cabinet every morning and taking 50 vitamins. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just not interesting to her. It's just kind of like, right. like there's things she's interested in. You know, she has her altar in our room and she pulls these cards and does these different practices and they seem to really support her and are helpful to her and she's passionate about them and she loves them and I'm not interested in them at all. doesn't mean they don't work or that she's wrong for doing them. It's just like, it's not my bag, at least not yet. And just like that, like her bag is not going in the hyperbaric oxygen chamber every single day and then hopping in the ice bath followed by red light therapy, then getting in the sauna and taking a spin on the biocharger while inhaling molecular hydrogen gas. 
Like, she's just like, really? Like, who has time for this? I have other shit to do. And I don't, yeah. and I don't falter for that either. It's great. I'm, I'm able to enjoy that we're different and, and that most people are not mad scientists like me that actually just really enjoy learning about all this stuff and experimenting with it all. Even my failed ketamine ex- experiment the other night, I mean, it was unpleasant for a few minutes, but I was like, wow, that was really interesting. I'm really glad to know how that works. Now I know something I didn't know. It's just part of my, becomes part of my lexicon and body of knowledge that I can share with people. And as I said earlier, my number one, you know, character trait or strength is input. And I just am constantly getting input. Some people like model trains and that's all they want to do. I could give a shit about model trains, but I'm really fascinated about what peptide does what to you and what you can fix with it, you know? So. I think it's just about self-acceptance and self-exploration and also in a willingness to, as I said earlier, let go of attachments and be willing to evolve. If I'm supposed to eventually outgrow all this shit and just, you know, eat my the meat and veggies I like that are organic and drink some spring water and not do anything else except that, meditate, breath work, and sleep, jump in a river here and there, and I feel amazing and healthy and vibrant, then I'll probably just do that. Yeah. It's an ongoing exploration, no matter what angle you come at it from because I think the most humbling thing about life is knowing that we have a lot less control than we think that we do. Yeah, and yeah, right. Being very mindful to when our ego is roaring its angry head and realizing that we don't know what's going to happen in a minute from now. And I think that it's so important what you said about just enjoying the process of whatever you're doing. And also trying not to judge people for doing it differently. And that's that's always been my work is I think all three of us, <laughs> we get so passionate, excited about this and we learn something and we, we just want to make sure that everybody knows the same information that we have. But I've had to realize that not everybody wants to know it all. Not everybody enjoys it. Some people get really overwhelmed by that information. Some people find it confusing and frustrating. And some people have conflicting information and they want to do it differently. And it's really helped me grow a lot as a person to just have a lot of acceptance for the fact that everybody's in different places. And even if they seem unhealthy or miserable, and I think I can help them, there's only so much that you can do for them. And there's also only so much that we can do for ourselves. So I think the finding the joy in it all and then letting go of the rest has helped me out a lot with my health journey. Yeah, that's a great reminder for me is to just also mind your own business. <laughs> you know, I know that yeah. I've, I've driven many a partner and friend crazy by sitting there and like hawkeyeing the food on their plate, <laughs> rolling my eyes. Like, really? There's canola oil in that. Do you know what canola oil does to you? You know, it's like, dude, shut up, mind your own business. And so I've, I've gotten actually a lot better at that. I mean, I'm not perfect. I'm not all the way there, but I do my best to keep my whatever perceived opinions about things are unless someone asks me, but God forbid they ask because, you know, like you guys are discovering <laughs> two hours and 18 minutes later, you're going to have the answer, you know, but, um, but it is, it's important to allow people to have their own autonomy and man, if they want to drive their car off a bridge and they haven't asked you to steer them right, mind your own business. That's their path. Just, just like my path is my path. And to some people it's kind of extreme and obsessive and whatever. And it's like, yeah, cool. It is. It's also fun. So is what it is. You go eat your GMOs. Talk to me. Talk to me. Um, you know, if the wheels fall off, I'll be here to help you. 
Right. I feel like it's the ultimate form of becoming Zen is when you can really let go of trying to control other people and what they do. And, and, uh, I actually have started to find more joy in it because I, it's, I remember what it was like. And I still do at times when I try to encourage or, or control somebody or persuade them. It's a tendency of mine as well that I don't know if it's the way I'll always be or just the way that I have been. And I, I'm ongoingly trying to uh, not be controlling to other people. And it's tough to unravel those those parts of you. And I found that when I just let somebody ask me questions or ask for more information, that is also a really pleasant experience because when they do come around and they ask questions, it's, it feels even more pleasurable emotionally than the times when I would try to force my opinions on somebody else and that discomfort of them pushing back or saying no. It just, that was never a good feeling of somebody just kind of saying, you know, you'd spend like half an hour sharing something and, and they wouldn't even be interested at the end. And then you'd feel like you wasted all this energy trying to convince them of something versus you expel very little amounts of energy and you wait for them to ask you for more information. It actually shows... It kind of weeds things out, right? It, it makes sure that you just don't waste any of our precious energy or time, which is one of our most important resources. And then you get to find out who actually really cares and wants that information and who's going to enjoy it with you. Yeah, that's a really great distinction. It's like, I think when I first learned to meditate in a tangible way with Vedic meditation, I set out to make all of my other friends learn how to meditate in the same exact way because I found the way, you know? And I realized that the folly in that and that the best way to really share things that you find that are of value is to just live them and radiate the results of your practices or lifestyle. And um, eventually, if people are meant to, they're going to be attracted to that light and they're going to come around and say, man, what have you been doing? You seem very different. You're just super chill. Or when I'm around you, I just feel so relaxed. I feel really good. What's your secret? What are you up to? And then comes, well, I've been doing this meditation and here's how it works. If you'd like to try it, this is the person to talk to rather than cramming it down everyone's throat. It's the principle of attraction rather than promotion of just being an example of good living and and allowing people on their own volition to inquire as to what you're doing and how so that they might be able to try it themselves. Yes. And that also is probably why all three of us have podcasts. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> there, it is. Think, there it is. We think, uh, well, people don't want to listen to what I'm saying. So I'll just put it out there and the people that want to listen can listen when they feel like it. Yeah, totally. I'm thinking when you started talking about that, I thought of something funny that happened last night. I I mean, it wasn't that funny, but it was just, a, it's a, a micro example of that. I went upstairs to go in bed, to go to bed and Allison was already in bed. And my whole house at night is wired with amber light bulbs. There's like no blue light in the house anywhere at night, except I did put a bright like white light in her, you know, the his and her side of the bathroom. So if she wants to do her makeup or actually see what's going on, but I never turned that one on at night. And then also, you know, all the computers are outfitted with this app called uh, Iris that turns off the blue light at night. And, you know, you can put different settings on it so that it's time like that. And every night after dark, I put my phone on like solid red light, my iPhone. And, um, and I did it to Allison's phone one day when I was being the controlling boyfriend that I am. And then 
most of the time at night, she just started doing it, which I was like, wow, that's really cool. I mean, I think I kind of was like overstepping boundaries a little bit by just grabbing her phone and doing that. But last night I went to bed and like I got in bed and I saw the blue light coming off her phone and she was like scrolling or looking at something and there's this bright blue light like shining in her face and I wanted so bad to be like, turn the red light on, like what are you doing? And I observed that thankfully and I just shut up and got in bed and just let her live her life, you know, and it's a good little tiny lesson in me not trying to impose my will on other people because how fucking annoying is that, you know? like. I would be crazy if someone was like always watching me and trying to tell me what to do. So I don't ever want to be that person. I'm getting a lot better at just letting it go. And I find when I do that people do kind of just like on their own arrive at some of the same habits that you have just because you get in sync, you know, you sort of, you synchronize and you both just end up, especially when you're cohabitating with someone, you just kind of get in a groove and you do things the same way. And that's the nice thing about surrendering and not trying to control the minutia of someone else's life and just, you know, hoping that you converge in a way that's copacetic enough for you both to stay happy and maintain your individuality. Yes. And I love that this came so full circle because the conversation really started to kick into full gear when you were talking about Allison at the beginning of this episode. And uh, it's just beautiful to see how it all tied together, like little bow of you ending on such a sweet story. And it also is such a great reminder of how much we can evolve as people and how much we can learn from our relationships. And uh, hearing you talk about that helps me reflect on the times where I've uh, gotten a little out of control <laughs> or by being too controlling in my you know, romantic and even family and friendships dynamics. And, and I think those are always such a great reflection of where we're at and how much we can grow as human beings. And so it's so wonderful when we have those opportunities to see ourselves through the reflection of some other person in our lives. So thank you for reflecting that back. And your relationship with her is, is really beautiful. And I think I can speak for Jason, but he'll, he'll probably echo this <laughs> in that um, it's just so sweet. I know it just reminds me of a lot of things that Jason talks about and things that he looks for in a partner. And so I know that he's probably enjoyed this as well, haven't you, Jason? Oh, big time. I mean, for for so many reasons. I mean, you know, Luke, you and I have known each other for probably four years now, you know, when we first met at the Longevity Now conference and I was a you know, guest on your podcast in the early days. And uh, I just feel like this two and a half hours together, man, you've just been so open and so from the heart and so no bullshit in yourself and vulnerable. All of the things people talk about, you are being it. And I just want to extend my appreciation for you showing up in that way, man. I feel closer to you as a person as a result of this conversation, and it just feels really good. I feel like I know you on a deeper level, man. So just thank you for showing up in all of the ways today. It's really meaningful. Oh, man. Thank you. And I, I'm glad you you mentioned coming on my podcast because I want to I want to thank you for for doing so. You know, when I when I started out, I was oh man, I had so much self-doubt and imposter syndrome. And it was really, it was actually quite intimidating and scary to ask people like you and so many other people to come on the show. It's it's funny looking back now because it's like, now it's it's like the hard part is like telling people no, because whatever reason, just logistically timing wise, or it's not a good fit. It's come a long way from having like too many guests to not having enough. And so I really appreciate you being willing to do that when my podcast was heard by so few people and I had no like 
credibility or reputation at all in in the health and wellness space and you you know were kind enough to come spend your time and contribute your credibility and following and and all of that to the show so it's nice to see it come full circle yeah it's like karma too because we can totally relate to that being relatively new right now and the journey that our podcast has been on <laughs> since we first started recording our episodes and we can totally relate to that nervousness i remember jason a few weeks ago there was one of our guests and he was feeling or he expressed to me that he was feeling like a not enoughness or i don't know how you could step in and share it, Jason. But it was uh, somebody else who had a really big platform that we were blessed to have on our show. And Jason just said something like, yeah, I'm a little embarrassed about like where we're at with our podcast. For sure. For sure. Yeah. It's just, it's always so interesting because Luke, when I think back on when I first started listening to your show, again, since I listened to the first, if not the second episode of your show, just to kind of look at other examples out there. And I was really impressed what you were doing so early on. And uh, I see no shame in it, you know, and it's so important for us to step back. I think being humble is really an important characteristic, but also a lot of times we're just so hard on ourselves and we, we think that other people are viewing us as harshly as we view ourselves. And usually that isn't true. We're probably doing a much better job than we realize. So you have certainly been an amazing example to us as a podcaster. And we're, we're so grateful to have you on the show. And and I hope that some of your listeners tuned in and learned something new about you. That's that's always our aim is to have guests on and talk in a way that maybe they haven't before. And uh, look forward to some feedback. If you've shared anything new or differently on this episode that your listeners have enjoyed, and maybe they'll stick around and listen to some other shows of ours. Awesome. That's a great format. You know that you're the basis of of y'all's show is is that because that's. I never expressly say that, but that's always my goal when I interview someone. In fact, to the point that I'll usually listen to every interview they've ever done that I can find. And part of my whole strategy is to ask them something totally different than anyone else has ever asked them. And so I I listen to their other interviews to determine what I'm not going to ask them when I interview them. And it's just, I think keeps it more spontaneous and fun. And also I find that when I interview people, like this happened when I interviewed Joe Dispenza because he's been interviewed so much and he kind of says the same stuff in most of them. He has his his take on the world and kind of has his spiel, which is brilliant, but it's um isn't always as spontaneous as I would like it to be. Or there were just questions I had that were a bit deeper and were going to serve my personal curiosity. And so I listened to all of his interviews and I just asked him all this off the wall shit. And I remember sitting there with him and he was looking at me kind of like, huh. This dude's interesting. I could tell he was digging it because they were just so bizarre. <laughs> I was asking about the entities in his workshops and like if ayahuasca does the same thing as his meditations and you know just a lot of really kind of out there stuff and and I could tell he was actually having fun and wasn't bored, you know, just like okay, I have to explain quantum theory to someone again, you know. And uh, so I think you guys are on to something really great, even in the name of your show and how you're doing it is to get people out of their comfort zone and break them out of that rote, like interview mode, which is really kind of tedious for everyone, especially when you're interviewing people that can be heard on a number of other platforms. You know, it's like you want to do something unique. So, so cool that you do it that way. 
Yeah. And the long, this is actually the longest episode we've ever done. So congratulations. <laughs> and it's funny because, you know, working with the podcast teams and advisors, everyone's saying you need to keep it under 20 minutes because that's how long the commutes are. And Jason and I have been so rebellious or no, we are Flat out, no. making them as long as we want them to be. Because, and you know what? It's always amazing when you can get a good example. And our, our best example is Joe Rogan's episode with Elon Musk, which was like, what, like four hours or something. But I think I listened to almost the entire show because it was so fascinating. And he was, Elon Musk was talking in a way that I'd never heard him talk before. And I was learning so much about him. And, and I just thought, this is amazing. I don't ever want this to end. And so that's, I feel like you do that too, Luke. You were honestly, you can ask Jason. I remember early on saying like, oh, Luke's, Luke's show is like a perfect example of how we, we want to do ours. So yeah. it's really cool. To- Thank you. Thank you. I Listen, I tried to make mine an hour and it was impossible. There's just, if someone doesn't want to leave and I have more questions that I want answers to, it's going to go <laughs> as long as it has to go. And when I go on shows, like if you guys said, all right, we're going to wrap it up in an hour, that's fine too. But if you keep asking me shit, I'll keep going until the cows come home. I just, there's so much great experience and knowledge to share that, you know, it's like while we have the ability to do so using these platforms that we have as independent media producers and quasi journalists, um, I'm just going for it. So I encourage you guys, man, make them as long as you feel they need to be. You can feel when a conversation's getting stale too. Sometimes I'll be talking to someone, right. I'm like, this feels done. And then I end it. And it, it, it might, you know, sometimes it's like 55 minutes or an hour and 15 minutes. And they might've said, yeah, I'm free all afternoon. And I just go, no, we're good. Like it's a perfect spot to put a bow in it and just wrap it up. Well, it's so great. But the challenge with you though, is that we never want to end it. And uh, you gave us all this free time. And so it's like endless. Um, and it's, I'm so curious for feedback on episodes like this, because it's just so interesting how in the podcasting world, there's all these kind of uh, strategies and and everybody wants to optimize their shows. And and I guess all three of us enjoy the, the lengthy, in-depth conversations because I want to listen to a long podcast on a road trip and I don't want to have to keep switching episodes. And, and I don't, even if I have to go on a short drive and I can only listen to 15 minutes of something... I'll just pick it up again. It's not like it's going to disappear in most cases. So I think it's funny, this mindset of having these compact episodes. Why do you have to listen to all of it in one sitting? Or if you are blessed to go on a long road trip, then uh, you have a lot to listen to. So Yeah, but doesn't this go back though to formula or roadmap versus trusting your intuition and trusting your gut and doing it your way? Because, you know, because Luke, you know, you're going to release this spectacular book whenever it gets birthed into the world. I have no doubt it's going to be wonderful and full of your personality, your heart, your unique take on the world. But, you know, you, you could easily make a choice. You wouldn't because I know you, but one, a person could make a choice to go like, so my publisher said if I write it this way and we use this title and we use this cover, it'll sell like a million copies. And I should probably listen to them because they're the publisher, even though it's going against my intuition. But I feel like there's, there's, again, this rebellious aspect to listening to yourself, even in the face of your record label or your publisher or whomever saying, nah, you should do it this way to get more sales. (laughs) But it's like, but you know, that's the great artist's challenge, right? I mean, how many people do we know over the years that have faced that? I mean, we've probably even faced it in our lives. All of us have. You have this carrot that's being dangled in front of you and you're like, you know what? I'm going to go dig up my own carrot. 
in the wilderness, like a wild carrot, a wild grown carrot, and I'm just going to do it my way. But that takes a lot of fortitude, man. That takes a lot of will to be able to do that. So just, you know, kudos to you and thanks for the support in us doing it our way too. We're like, you know what? Fuck it. We're doing it our way and the chips are going to fall how they fall. That's so funny that you mentioned the book thing because I I was in a guided journey with a healer about a month ago and I'd been kicking around the idea of doing a book for a while and during this experience, and I'll give you the short version of it, but I just started asking questions. What is this book? What's it about? Like, how come I can't get this going? And it became clear to me that my motive for wanting to write a book was very (laughs) based on self-interest and what it could do for me and how I could make money and become famous and get paid to speak at big conferences. And like, I'm like, because all my friends have books and it's helping them. Like literally that, that was kind of the basis of my motivation. And then in that experience, I realized like, uh, no, I'm not doing it for that reason. Fuck that. And no offense to anyone that does it for that reason. It's a great business move strategically and business is great, but that's not the book I wanted to write. And so in that realization, which went on for quite a while, I realized, oh no, I actually have something inside me, a concept for a book that's really going to help a lot of people. And then I totally switched the the motive. I was like, oh no, I actually want to help alleviate suffering <laughs> in the world and help people to find answers to questions existentially that I believe would really serve them. And then in that moment, the title of the book and the cover of the book came into my awareness, which I'm not going to reveal because I don't want to blow, you know, blow my wad on that. But the title of the book and the cover of the book. And then of course, the thought was like, what if you can't get published? What if nobody wants it? Or what if they want to change the thing and they don't like that title or what you want it to be about, et cetera. And just in that moment, I was like, nope, this is what it is. <laughs> That's it. And if I have to put it out myself or print it at Kinko's and you know, like put it on street corners, whatever, this is the book. And that's what it's called. And this is the cover. That's it. And I don't know if that's going to be the right business move, but it's going to be the right move for my heart. And it's going to be the book that has the most energetic power to help people transform and heal themselves. And that's what the intention of it is and the goal of it is. So that's what it's going to be. And I don't care how long it is, how short it is, whatever. I mean, of course, you know, you work with editors and you make it as impactful as possible. But as far as like being told what it's supposed to be so I can make money, like, dude, money is a very feeble motivation for doing something that, you know, is going to maybe alternatively stand the test of time and really be impactful for a number of people long after you're gone. You know, it's more of the legacy of it and the having something that is longstanding. So yeah, it's a great point, Jason, man. Y'all do your thing. You're killing it and do it in whatever way serves your heart. I love that. Yes, absolutely. I'm actually, since I read a lot, another book reference is Seth Godin's book, this is marketing. And that's a huge theme of his book. And it's, it's a book about marketing. And yet, his, one of the big points in the sections I've read so far is just how everything needs to come down to, to serving people and helping them. And we are in that same boat as you, Luke, where our work at the core is about helping alleviate as much suffering as we possibly can. And uh, I can't wait to read your book. Obviously, I love I love reading, so I'll be adding my yours to my queue as soon as nice. it's available. Wow. I can't wait to see the cover, and I'm sure it's going to be a massive success with all of your passion and knowledge and life experiences. And you have such a great story, pun intended. And yeah, this is really exciting. We'll definitely put it in the show notes if anybody's listening to this episode after the book comes out. 
We have show notes and you can look at them as soon as this episode is out because uh, we'll be referencing books and podcast episodes and products and so many different things. All of Luke's information will be in our show notes at wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. Our brand is all about helping you elevate your wellness. That's what Wellevator means. And uh, if you want to keep expanding your knowledge, you go to the website. We've got a lot of free resources there, plus links to everything that we've been discussing in the show. So you can dive in a lot deeper if you enjoy doing that as much as the three of us do. Yeah. And also, if you guys want to dive into the hundreds of incredible podcasts on the Lifestylist podcast with Luke Story, we will have the link to his podcast, his Instagram, his website which has a tremendous amount. I just want to say this because I learned about lambs from you, Luke, and ordered my beanie and my underwear. So if y'all want to get hip to a lot of the ultra, ultra effective wellness products and supplements and biohacking gear that Luke uses that I'm always hip to seeing what he's using, and I trust him kind of as, as a mentor and guide to that, check out his website, lukestory.com. We'll link to that and his shop section with links to all the stuff that he uses and by proxy stuff that I have ordered because I trust his recommendations. Uh, thanks, I appreciate that. Yeah, it just got to be where it got to be so laborious to individually answer questions to people that would say like, hey, what's what's the best EMF clothes or whatever? <laughs> it was like, shit, this is a full-time job. So yeah, I just made a collection of links basically, like affiliate links. And then it, the funny thing about it is my online store has actually been really, as the audience has grown, has been really supportive financially too, which I didn't even realize that was possible or a thing, but it, you know, it's not a lot, but it, as the audience grows, it, it trickles in. So it's something I would do for free anyway. And it's kind of a bonus that people get discounts and I get a commission and it's just a great way for people to find everything kind of in one place. So thank you for giving that a shout out. That's really kind of you. Hell yeah. Always trust you with just your explorations, brother, and uh, best of success to you. We both look up to you as a uh as a friend and a mentor in this field. And again, it's just been our absolute pleasure to have you on, man. Thank you for taking the time and this massive chunk out of your day to go deep with us and um, just share your heart with our audience. Just, I, I can't wait, dude, I can't wait to have a tonic with you and jam. We've been talking about jamming for like months. Bro, <laughs> when know. all this is done, just tonic and jam session. That's all I'm saying. I know, I know. And you sing too, which is great. I love hanging around people that sing because I don't do a lot of singing. I would like to, but it's I have a little bit of a block there. So I usually like having someone else do it. We'll work yeah. on it, man. Well, I'll give you some, yeah, I'll give you some give vocal me, tips, maybe. Give me, give me some lessons, guitar bro. lessons. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Luke. Awesome. Thanks so much, Luke. Appreciate you, brother. All right, you guys. Take care. Bye. All right, bye. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. 